It was during the middle of World War II. Los Angeles was really flourishing and metamorphizing from being kind of a sleepy cow town to being a real industrial powerhouse. Tons of people and cars and energy and factories came. And yet in the middle of this boom, this haze just descended on L.A. and people were choking on it. It was creating a lot of hysteria, actually, and it felt more chemical than the other hazes that had hit before. And th- there was a panic. I think it took them a few days to realize, no, there wasn't a Japanese submarine lobbying chemical shells. It was really coming from something we were doing inside the city. But for a while, there was an unknown. Are we in, you know, is Los Angeles being attacked? There was an excitement, but mainly there was fear. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. I, I would say that, um, you know, the industrialization that had occurred to, to produce for the war uh, had been building up slowly. And in Los Angeles, because we uh, are surrounded by mountains and have uh, high-pressure systems that create an inversion layer, a layer of hot air aloft that holds the cooler ocean air down close to the ground, and everything that gets burned or emitted winds up in that cooler air, if you have a really bad inversion day, you know the smog gets very concentrated and, and you get to very high levels, and that's what happened that day. All the industrial emissions, you know, combined with that bad inversion layer. At first, um, generally, we looked at smog as a code enforcement problem. Uh, we just got to crack down on the factories. Then we looked at it as, um, no, there's some engineering involved. And then we realized none of those things are going to do it. In fact, the backyard incinerator was a tipping point. Before we really could put the finger on the car companies, the politicians said everybody has to do something to eliminate the bad air we're all breathing. But there was such an enormous and vitriolic back- backlash. The politicians worried about their own survival. And it taught them it is uh, risky and, in fact, a good way not to be a politician anymore if you ask people to change their personal behavior. And that really encouraged a reliance on technology, which is a a pretty dangerous uh, all-your-eggs-in-one-basket solution. Design a filter that will make it not so dirty and keep doing what you're doing. We love technology, especially in the 50s, and that's where we put all our eggs. Nobody wanted to be told, hey, you got to eliminate a car. you got to trade in your Oldsmobile. Um, people were loving it. The car companies had the greatest car market the world had ever seen in Los Angeles in the 1950s. A bunch of engineers from the big three car makers, GM, Ford, Chrysler, um, so maybe maybe some other smaller ones that came out here to address the smog problem. And uh, they said, we're not fooling around. We're here on serious business, people, and these are our products, and we're going to be responsible. And it turned out just to be a 10-year campaigns of lie, denial, confusion, and really collusion. It, it culminated in a federal antitrust case that helped Ralph Nader launch his career. But for a long time, the people of Los Angeles believed the car makers when they said, we are working cooperatively. Actually, they even formed a trade association to figure out the sources of smog. But all the while, they said, you know, this is a tough one because it's not our products causing the problem. It's your weather. It's the meteorological conditions in Los Angeles, the inversion layer. So they really blamed our smog on our natural environment, not on their fossil fuel emission gorging you know, machines. So it was ironic. However, they had a people in Los Angeles that wanted to hear that message because we loved our cars. In your book, you sort of identify this pre-1950s period where these new regulatory agencies and the city council and everyone is struggling to figure out where is this coming from? What, you know, what's responsible? And 
several times they point their fingers at the oil industry. Because uh, th- there was, which I think Chip can probably talk more about, but a a scientist at Caltech named Ari Hagensmith who had done studies uh, on what was causing smog. And he discovered basically that it was burning gasoline that was the biggest cause of smog because of the the hydrocarbons in in gasoline and and just what happened to it when it was emitted out of a car in the atmosphere that it was transforming uh, reacting you know with sun sunlight and things in the atmosphere already you know to produce uh, what we call photochemical smog ozone and other compounds in the air but the the oil companies which I think he can tell you tried to actually smear Hagen Smith's scientific reputation to undercut uh, what he was finding out. In the mid-50s, so 50 years ago, this was a known factor in air pollution, at least locally. Yes. I, I think that was where things were headed. I, I think at that point, by the mid to late 50s, you know, sort of like with cigarettes, you know, very similar. I mean, it was known that uh, oil and burning fossil fuel was the chief culprit with air pollution. And, uh, you know, it, of course, uh, was not an easy problem to deal with because our whole economy really had been built on abundant, cheap fossil fuel being readily available. It seems pretty straightforward and simple, although I think it's worth parsing out a little bit the relationship between oil companies and production and extraction in Los Angeles and the driving culture. Yes. I mean, Los Angeles was a major oil producer going back to that point, you know, as was California. The the auto was the chief market, you know, for the product and the growth of, of auto use and the growth of the freeway system. Uh, and, uh, of course, what happened subsequently was that uh, as more oil was pumped, eventually, you know, it the wells declined, you know, and it, 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 we still pump oil here today, but not nearly what we did going back into the, the 50s. And, um, you know, we need so much more of it that we're no longer self-sufficient. So we're dependent upon, you know, oil here from other parts of the country or internationally, you know, that needs to be brought into the refineries but the oil companies back at this point when the science was surfacing had an enormous pull in terms of the economy here. They had a gigantic pull. They were, you know, the fat cats that we think about when we think about, you know, early Los Angeles. Actually, um, in the 40s, late 40s, before we really could put our finger on the problem, the oil companies were terribly um, – vilified and blamed before the data was in. Um, And um, it was just the belief these big operations, of course, were generating the smog. It was really the cars. So um, after years and years and years of feeling politically beat up, they eventually uh, got institutions and organizations to do the research for them. In some ways, these were front groups. One was called the Stanford Research Institute, a independent, quote-unquote, think tank on the Stanford University campus. The other was a very powerful group called the Western Oil and Gas Association. Um, They essentially did a lot of the talking and some of the scientific um, denials of 
the oil companies being responsible for pollution that was choking people. And so by the time this Caltech biochemist came along, the oil companies felt like they were up on the cross and they were martyred and they were misunderstood. And they try to pump out a lot of, of, P, of PR releases and percentages and all that. People still don't believe them. And so um, this little biochemist from Caltech was saying something they did not want to hear, which is the things that they refined was going into a car and causing this massive amount of smog. And it was almost hysterical. They were, den- they were ignoring the scientists' work until they no longer could. There was even a big symposium in Los Angeles where they invited every be- person except for this guy from Caltech who said smog and hydrocarbons are synonymous. And so it, got, it was rather a morality play and um, you know, a, a case of people feeling they were um, blamed for something they didn't cause. The measurement devices that were available at the time, there was the smogometer, I think, that you start out with. And I mean, what were these things? How, how was it possible really to do more than just, as you were both saying, look at the air and say, you know, we think this is happening because we can see it? Well, I, I think what the, the old... Uh, way that they measured air pollution was was to measure uh, essentially uh, the the oxidants in the air uh, or ozone and what they would do is essentially stretch a rubber band and they would time how long it took to uh, for the rubber band to break in the air because the air would oxidize the rubber and and uh, degrade it and uh, by doing this on different days you know eventually they could get some sort of calibration you know, uh, uh, standardize the measurement. And and that was how it was initially measured. And there were very, you know, part of the, the problem of the regulatory agency that was formed here, the Air Pollution Control District for the county, was to, to actually figure out where smog was and, and how it was moving, where it was coming from, uh, measuring the levels, you know, to understand what was actually going on in the environment. You know, so that was a huge... A task, you know, that that later had to be expanded because the smog blew all the way downwind into Riverside and San Bernardino, where people were living. Although most of it was coming from Los Angeles, and so that became another political issue because uh, the, the the county supervisors in Los Angeles, which had all the industry, uh, you know, didn't want to ruin its economy here necessarily. It was dependent upon the industry for the jobs and revenue. Um, but the downwind people had no political representation, you know, among those who were making the decisions about regulating these sources of air pollution. You know, so that became an eventual struggle where they wanted to get representation, and that's when they unified the county air pollution control districts into what is today the regional South Coast Air Quality Management District, and that happened in the mid-1970s. But that story, that took many, many years before it happened. Downwind, you hear downstream all the time, and it's a very concrete topographic happening that you can follow. But downwind is something that I think in larger terms, if we contextualize these connections between the car and oil production and the use of oil and what comes out of a tailpipe, that at the global level, that whole concept of downwind or movement of air across the globe is something that I think still is not very well understood. And actually, uh, this is one of the interesting things about smog. It was it was really one of the first environmental crises uh, of such a nature that th- these spillover 
consequences occurred. Um, the downwinders were the victims of L.A.'s industrial smog production and consumer car smog production, and people that wanted to live more rural lives or less city-fied lives were thinking, great, we're living out here, and we're still getting the, the most noxious result of Los Angeles that we could. Palm Springs became a giant issue. And they felt like they were being – it felt like it was almost a form of murder. San Diego was the same place, Orange County. And, um, you know, they felt like this was just a rude, uh, messy, um, callous big brother that was just choking them. And um, it, as Bill said, it did create this political anger to have a regional-wide uh, process because who wants to be just the victim of somebody else's waste? And that's what was happening. Um, and going back to your idea on the machines, the machines were so crude and clunky. Uh, it's it's almost like looking at an old-fashioned battery. They would weigh down cars with these testing equipments. They would stick these gadgets in tailpipes to try to figure out what was coming out of them. In some cases, they had some primitive machines at the, at the old smog agency that used to leak acid that would drip through the floors. So our, tech, our technologies today are modern miles ahead. In terms of our social understanding, I'm not so sure. Can you imagine today, newsflash, we have the worst air quality in the United States in this city. Tell us something we don't know. Exactly. So people have become desensitized to some extent to it, but the air quality is far better than it was at the time. It's it's far better, and I think that is the reason. I mean, smog, when you uh, lived here in the 1960s or 50s or even the 70s, even into the 80s and the early 90s, was palpable. I mean, your eyes would would sting. You would feel it in your chest when you took a breath. You could smell gasoline, you know, hanging in the air when you went out to get the paper in the morning, you know, from the doorstep. And uh, it's not like that now for most people. There are pockets in the city where or the area where you still have a lot of diesel soot, although that's starting to be cleaned up, and where you still have that sort of palpable um, um, uh, perception, you know, of air pollution. Uh, but um, but because of uh, the fact that most people don't get that anymore on a regular basis, it it has dropped off the the public agenda, and it's a top issue 